I'm so excited to have one of the authors of the series, Math by the Book, join us for this episode. The Math by the Book series has a bundle for kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth, and fifth grade, and uses children's literature as a vehicle for engagement, authenticity, and understanding the value of including context in our work with children to help them make connections about the world. Teachers are always looking for outside resources to build up their collection of activities and relevant tasks. Today's episode also gives us some background and insight about what makes up a quality resource and reminds us that quality is often more valuable than quantity. Welcome to the Kids Math Talk podcast, where in each episode, we give parents and educators practical tips and insights that will deepen mathematical understanding while also encouraging the conversation about math to remain active and positive. I'm your host, Desiree Harrison, elementary math coach and Kids Math Talk founder. So welcome to the Kids Math Talk podcast. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm TJ. I am a math consultant from Burlington, Vermont, and uh, I'm really excited to be here. I have a background a uh, long time ago as a special educator. Uh, I was also a math recovery and a math interventionist for years. Uh, I did a lot of curriculum work in my district uh, and then became a math coach. And for about the last decade, I've been traveling around our country and internationally working with teachers from pre-K to sixth grade. All right. Yes, I'm excited to talk with you today. So just in my seeing your posts and just learning more about you through social media, I know that you're connected with lots of resources. So that's kind of like around our theme for today's episode. So, and I know that teachers have so many decisions to make every minute of every day. And it seems especially in the past 10 years or so, many teachers have added on to this plate and that of picking resources, and they've added that to this ever-growing list. And that seems to have resulted in what some call decision fatigue. So can you tell us, with your experiences and your background in math education, can you just talk to us about how you assist teachers in building a collection of quality resources that doesn't result in this burnout? Sure. Great. Gosh, my my brain is going in so many directions as you ask that. Um, the first thing I want to just talk about quickly was a great presentation I saw at, I think it was NCTM in San Diego from Dr. Hilary Kreisberg. And she talked about a um, this uh, this research study that was done around jams. So you go to like a you know a really nice supermarket, and they had little tables of jams out, and they had a table with like six different jams, and then a table with like twenty two different. And and in a nutshell, what they found, which they kind of extrapolate out to other things, which will make sense when I finish telling the story, um, is that the table that had six jams didn't have as many people like tasting the jams. The one that had more jams had more people come to it, but the table with only six jams actually had more people 
purchase those jams. So it is this like kind of, there is a kind of a breaking point once you get so many options for something. You know, it's nice to have more than one option or two, just two options, but it's not endless, right? You can't just have this open kind of no limits to something. So, so absolutely what you're saying is, is a real thing. And so I, have supported teachers over the last uh, decade or so, starting in my own school district, specifically around the Bridges program. So I've done a lot of work with teachers um, of of how to use that program in a way. And one of the things I find, regardless if it's if it's Bridges or you know Engage New York or Eureka or whatever it may be, is that we have to think about. And I always say this when I'm whenever I'm working with teachers, it's like you are professionals and you have lots of experience and and credentials and um and degrees and you have to make these decisions and so there's there's always these words about fidelity and how to you know use a program or use materials with fidelity and i think that's such a dangerous word be not because it's not a good word but because i think people misinterpret it what it actually means um and so again all of that kind of gets to this question you're asking about, you know, having all of these resources and what to do, how to how to help teachers. So I think there has to be a combination when uh, folks like myself are working with teachers uh, in, in kind of the trenches of like, you've got to understand the mathematics you're teaching and you have to be able to identify what is a quality resource, first of all, because, uh, you know, I know a lot of teachers that go on teacher pay teacher and, and uh, not to badmouth them, but I, I don't believe there's like the best resources there. It wouldn't be my first go-to. Uh, and so one of the little projects I did over uh, the last year, uh, kind of when I was grounded at home in Vermont during the pandemic, was uh, I reached out to the folks at All Learners, whom I've done some work with, and I said, hey, I'd really love to put together you know, a collection of kind of curated resources specifically for number sense routines. Um, they call it a launch. And um, so they, uh, but I didn't have any like I, I don't know how to create a web page, so they they lent me their uh, their webmaster. So I had some support, and I I had all the content knowledge. So I just kind of fed that to her, and she kind of created this page. Um, and it's it's still a work in progress, but um, but it's a great place to kind of go and um, highlight some of those amazing resources, um, like which one doesn't belong or number talk images. You know these things that people have put out there, um, and I've used myself and just found so much um, so much great engagement with students. Um, so not only are students excited and engaged, but they're also it, they're getting at really important math concepts. Um, so that was part of it was just curating that. But then the other piece of it has started uh, is that um, folks have started sending me like images and things of like, hey, this is something I did with my kids or a woman got um, chocolate covered cherries from her husband <laughs> for like Valentine's Day or something. And she yelled at him before he ate them because she's like, I have to take a picture of this. It's an array. I have to send it to TJ. <laughs> so um, so I've been just collecting these kind of great images uh and, you know, social media is just such a great place to do that uh, and to learn about these things. You know, I follow people like Howie Hua on there and he posts some great stuff. I've reached out to him and said, hey, do you mind if I put some of your images on our site? Um, so so I think in a nutshell, to, to really answer your question, it's, it's, uh, it's helping uh, teachers in the field kind of identify like what is it 
that kind of creates a quality task because a quality task um, doesn't have just one answer maybe or it doesn't have just one way to get that answer and so it provides that opportunity for lots of different entry points um, you know from a, a really concrete level or a student who might need that visual to kind of enter into the task to um, to extend in the other direction for a student who re might really need some kind of um, you know extension so so just thinking about like what are the characteristics of a, of a really good task um, whether it be for a launch a number sense routine or for kind of your main lesson to to uh, to kind of populate that so thank you for talking about definitions with that word fidelity and how we might think we know what somebody else means but unless we really lay it out there we're not necessarily talking the same language and just another note about teachers paying teachers I completely agree but if you had asked me I don't know maybe like six years ago I might have had a different answer just because of like things that I've learned along the way and just realizing how saturated that marketplace has become and 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 used to be and thinking about of course there are some things that you could download and you know have a fantastic experience with your student but just that piece that you were talking about intentionally being curated and then vetted is not something that is an intentional practice of a lot of these open marketplaces and I um, if there's one message that I hope that listeners today get from this piece right here is just that everything has to be intentional and that we have to look beyond if it's cute or if we think it's going to be quote unquote fun and get back to that definition of quality that you were just talking to, talking about. Right. Well, I, I think the other piece that goes along with what you're saying um, that I didn't mention is also that idea of I, I can take a, like a so-so task or a so-so, you know, image and depending on what I do in my teacher moves, right? So it's not coming from the task itself or it's not coming from a program and the way they tell you to teach this. But if I know to, for instance, you know, shout out to Annie Fetter, like just do a notice and wonder. So I put up some problem, whether it's a word problem and I don't show the question yet or it's an image. And I just say, what do you notice? What do you wonder? provide some airspace for that, let, let students turn and talk, you know, and, and just, it, it's just kind of creating this environment where students have to think and use their head versus being spoon fed these problems that, you know, have this nice smooth path that we then applaud them for jumping over cracks in the pavement. Um, so I think that's the other piece. And, and that kind of goes back to what I said about honoring teachers, honoring teachers as experts, as their expertise, their, um, you know, their experiences and, and, and their, their degrees that they have and let them make decisions, but give them the tools to make those decisions. And then, you know, then the quality of the task isn't quite as important when you have a teacher that, you know, intentionally knows what to do with something that might be, you know, missing the rigor of another task. Yeah, definitely thinking about the implementation and what you were saying earlier about just having the content knowledge and the background knowledge. Um, so, okay, you've helped us start to define what we might consider as a quality resource when we're out there searching, if we choose to do that searching. 
So once we have a collection of quality resources, uh, how can teams of teachers and maybe even coaches who are working with teachers use some of these and use these like Rich Math Tasks or the Notice and Wonder or any of these launches that you have curated on your website as tools for reflection about their own teaching practice? Yeah. So one thing I want to mention to start off with, I was so happy you brought up like kind of defining terms. And, and again, this word that I personally think is dangerous when it's used in education is fidelity. And to me, we shouldn't think about or talk about fidelity unless we're talking about or including the students that are sitting in front of us, right? So I'm I don't think it's teaching with fidelity to use a program or use a task in the way it's intended if it doesn't match up or meet the needs of those students that are sitting in front of you, right? So, um, so if, if, if you're choosing to just kind of follow a script because, oh, that's what the program said, that's what the program said I was supposed to do today, then you're really not teaching to fidelity because you're ignoring those little kiddos sitting right in front of you. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, I think you have to have some knowledge of formative assessment, some data, you know, assessment data, observational data, anecdotal data to be able to say like, here's what I know about the kiddos that are sitting in front of me. And, and I know I'm responsible for if they're in third grade, I'm responsible for teaching third grade mathematical content. But I can't ignore the fact that maybe there are some instructional gaps in their you know, their background um, in some first and second grade standards. So I've got to address those somehow. Um, and so as a team, I can think about where do I do that, right? Because I, I can't just put third grade content on hold and say, oh, I'll just teach first and second grade things that maybe they didn't get because maybe there wasn't, you know, there was a break in instruction or maybe it was, you know, something to do with coronavirus or whatever. So you have to find ways to do both of those things, right? You have to, because if I put third, my current grade level content on hold, then I'm just going to create this snowball that keeps going. And when they're in fourth grade, then they're not going to have, they're going to be missing some third grade thing. So I think that's one thing for teams to work together to really think about, like, here's where our students are at. These are the resources we have in front of me, whether it's a, you know, a package program that your district has uh, purchased or whether you're pulling something from, you know, the website that I've created. So I think that's a really important, important piece to, um, to keep uh, in mind as, as teams come together. I also think, I guess, my my immediate kind of thought when you asked this question was thinking about um, Peg Smith and um, uh, Mary Kay Stein and their book, The Five Practices for Orchestrating Productive Math Discussions, because I have used that, like that literally transformed my uh, instruction more than a decade ago when it came out. And so I think I, I call it like five practicing, you know, like you can five practice anything. So anticipating... Um, because to me, the whole, like the, the biggest takeaway I had and, and what I've, I, I hope I've brought to teachers in the field is that when we're teaching, um, that's not the whole of our job is not when we're directly in front of students. It's everything that goes into planning prior and anticipating what students will do. And the more I can anticipate and think about, you know, here's this task. Here's how I'm going to introduce it with a notice and wonder. Um, these are the questions I think my students will come up with, like, this is what I think they'll notice and wonder about it. But I'm not a soothsayer. I don't know. There might be other things that I didn't even think of. So I've got to leave space for that as well. 
But the beautiful thing when I've done all this anticipating, then it's much easier for me to focus on something like, oh my gosh, like how did I miss that? You know, some kiddo like brings up, this happened to all of us, right? Some kiddo mentions something or they ask this question. You're like, my gosh, why didn't I even think of that? Um, so, and then you can actually really give your, your focus and your energy to that. Because if that's something that's like a really great question that goes along with like your mathematical gold and your goal and your, your where you want to take the students, then that's gold, right? Like, Pulling that from the students is so huge. It's so much better than anything that we could ever present to students. Yeah, you bring up so many great points. And in episode 19 of the podcast, I actually had the absolute pleasure to talk with Dr. Peg Smith. And um, just, it's so true. That is that book and that framework, and or those books, I should say now, are, they're so transformational and just every teacher, no matter what discipline really, should just pick up this book and just think about, I guess it goes back into what is my, um, what is my teaching philosophy? And like, if you, what do I really believe about teaching and learning? And if you're, if you're coming back to more of that banking model, and just like the behaviorist, and you're just doing this to turn turn the next page and just to get through things and just to give information for kids, then you might not connect with this five practices framework and with other things that we're speaking to today. But hopefully, we're not stuck in that um, banking model and we're moving to the constructivist model that like with them with bridges and so many other programs out there or even shifting to have like more of a critical pedagogy and really thinking about I'm not here as a teacher just to give information for to students I'm here to facilitate and to help elicit student thinking and to help them make discoveries and if that is your teaching philosophy, then you're willing to be vulnerable and you're going to be willing to use those that five practices framework and just deepen your own understanding and help really like liberate your students and help them think for themselves because hopefully that is our ultimate goal is to to create critical thinkers i mean one of one of the goals absolutely i mean one of my favorite things in education, either as a teacher myself, or um, I'm fortunately had the opportunity to be in classrooms across the country and world. I've gone to Africa, I've gone to Bangkok, um, and I've seen, I've been in classrooms in these other countries as well. And seeing when a teacher, and I've done this myself, you know, the students just kind of take over and start talking and answering and, and questioning each other. And they're not going off topic. They're not, or not being inappropriate, you know, they're, they're just curious. Um, and you can almost like put your hands up and kind of step back and let it happen. And like you said, be the facilitator like that, like, that's when I get goosebumps. Like, I'm like, that's what I do, why I do what I do. Um, so, but there's so much that goes into, you know, creating a situation where that's possible. Um, cause that doesn't just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because you read that book, you know, you, there's so much, uh, kind of forethought, just like what I was saying earlier with, you know, there's so much pre-planning and pre-thought that goes into getting a task that's going to be really engaging for all students. Um, because I can't just focus on the students that struggle. I can't just focus on the students that might need an extension. I have to focus on all the students. Uh, so that I think that's just such an important thing. Yeah, it's definitely not going to happen overnight. 
It's every single day, every single action that you are implementing is going to have an impact. And that actually, actually what I say to teachers when I, because you were saying, you know, someone who maybe has this, um, isn't kind of of a constructivist mind, but hopefully maybe they're moving in that direction. Um, it can feel overwhelming, right? Like I'm, I'm supposed to like do this level of intensity of planning for every task, you know, five days a week or, you know, multiple sections. And, uh, and I always say it's, it's not about overwhelming yourself because that's the last thing I want to do is overwhelm teachers, especially in today's environment. But it's kind of changing your mindset a little. And I, I, what I've found in my own personal practice is that once I had a mindset of like anticipating and it just became a lot easier, you know, and if I did a couple lessons for each week or a couple lessons in a unit and, you know, year after year, you're teaching the same stuff or similar stuff, you're you're going to get to a place where it's not overwhelming and it just becomes kind of habituated and part of what you do. Yeah. But thank you for saying that too, because the last thing I think we want is for teachers to be overwhelmed or feel defeated before they even start. But starting with a small goal and just knowing that anybody who you see or hear that might make it look quote unquote easy, it's it's a lot of little steps that have ta- that they have taken to get to that step or to get to that point over many years i would say absolutely which is a great advertisement right there for why we need coaches in school you know content coaches um specifically in math i, think. I definitely advocate for math coaches um so you've told us a little bit about your story And um, so there are some emerging themes in math education and storytelling happens to be one of those and just bringing back more of um, more human qualities to mathematics and helping students and adults alike make more connections. And we were also talking about quality resources. So uh, you are active in creating these resources, not just for curating them on your website, but you're also a co-author of um, on this book series that's called Math by the Book, where one of the taglines is, through stories, math comes to life. So tell us about the series and how these bundles illuminate the math and literacy connection. Yeah, so... I, like if you could see me, I'd be bursting because I'm I'm just I'm so excited about this project and it's been a really long time in the making. It was supposed to come out like April of 2020, <laughs> so and uh, the the whole pandemic situation kind of you know helped to slow that down, and then there were other extenuating circumstances, um, which in the end made it a better project. So um, so my background, which I didn't mention earlier, is uh, when I did my graduate degree at the University of Vermont, it was a dual, I was dual certified as a consulting teacher, which was for special education. And I was also certified as a reading coordinator. So both my certifications were K-12. And um, uh, although I pretty much exclusively worked K-5 uh, in schools. And, um, and at one point in my life, I thought I wanted to be, you know, like a reading specialist, uh, interventionist, whatever and just happened to be in my district that it didn't make sense because all of the folks that were in those positions had way more seniority than I did so I, I it happened to be it was I think my second year in my school and so I'm really low person on the totem pole and you know I, like I didn't 
have a lot of opportunities when they came up because there were so many people in front of me. And unfortunately for me, all of the the teachers that would have taken this opportunity uh, of of becoming a math recovery uh, trained teacher uh, were all pregnant that year. So so that's kind of had started my math journey. So so I have this background as a as a literacy person way long ago, and, and but the last twenty years, my whole kind of professional career has been around math content, math pedagogy. Um, so I had the fortune, uh, thanks to my friend Barb Blanke, shout out to Barb Blanke in California, um, and she connected me with Sue O'Connell, who's the lead main author of this whole series and has written many other uh, wonderful resources, including Math and Practice. And so she uh, had approached me and said, I have this, this uh, opportunity at third grade. So it's a K-5 series. Uh, there were two co-authors with Sue at every grade level. Um, and so I had the privilege of being on the third grade team. And, um, and each grade level is going to have 10, um, children's literature books. And they're not like the typical, like, mathy book, you know, um, or it's not a book that you would necessarily look at and go, oh, yes, that you can pull a math lesson out of that. Um, so we, ju- we just, some of them might be, but, but the majority of the books are just really good quality, um, and representative children's literature. So we wanted all students to feel like they're being seen and heard and like their um, their identities are represented. So we have a really great diverse, um, not only like story um, collection, but also the authors of those stories. Uh, and so I um, was able to write or co-write uh, math lessons for 10 different books at my grade level because my uh, other co-partner wrote the other for the other 10. Um, and in doing that, I got to go into some local schools here in Vermont and work with um, some just phenomenal teachers uh, and students. Um, actually, I started the end of two years ago and then finished uh, not this past school year, but the school year before. Um, so I had kind of two cohorts of third grade students and I'd get to, you know, I had the book and I would read it and then I would like kind of think of some ideas and go in, try them out and, oh, this worked really well or this didn't. Um, and so in, in general, our, our kind of every uh, book has kind of like some kind of launchy things, you know, some number sense routines you could do with them. So there's one book, uh, that's called, um, Oh my gosh, I'm going to forget the title. This is awful. Uh, it's uh, Mango Abuela and I, uh, or and me. And uh, it's about a, a, a girl uh, who uh, lives in New York City or in a city with her parents. And, um, uh, you know, they've, they're, uh, have lived in the States for a while and she doesn't uh, speak Spanish yet. And um, her grandmother, her abuela, comes to visit. And her abuela is from uh, somewhere Spanish speaking and she doesn't speak any English. So at first they're a little standoffish with each other. And then, you know, through cooking together and kind of spending time together and doing all these things, they, you know, the, the abuela learned some English and the uh, little girl learned some Spanish and they develop this great, you know, relationship. So one of the things they do is they cook these meat pies and they're doing all these cooking. So we take some of the items from the episode of the book, from the cooking, we take like eggs and we'll take an image of eggs and look at it in the third grade, you know, you're starting to get into multiplication. So, um, take, 
taking that image um, of a, a, a dozen eggs and looking at, you know, what if you look at it where it's um, two columns of six each? Like, what can you see? Can you see the two groups of six? Can you see the um, three groups of four? Can you see the four groups of three? All those things. What, what if I turn it and now it's two rows of six? You know, are, the, are they the same? Are they different? So it's really kind of providing this common experience for students because there are some students, maybe they never saw a, a, you know, a carton of eggs. Maybe their parents don't cook at home. Um, or, you know, or, or other things that are, you know, if you're a student who lives rurally and you've never seen a bus or you've never seen a subway or you're a student who lives in the city and you've never seen a farm. So these stories kind of provide this common experience. So it's this level playing field for students um, to have this experience. And of course, teachers can bring in, you know, other pictures. Oh gosh, you've never been to a city. Well, here's what, you know, cities look like and add some pictures and photographs. And uh, of course, the books themselves have great photographs. Um, and so the other kind of components are there's, you know, there's some word problems, some, uh, you know, different word problems that students can do. Um, one of the books uh, I wrote for had roller coasters. And so I actually researched and found like the heights of all these different roller coasters around the country. And then we were doing addition subtraction problems using the heights of the roller coasters. So, you know, like, don't do math because you're, you know, this book says on page nine, you're supposed to subtract some numbers. But now I'm actually intrigued because I heard this story. I like roller coasters. Now I'm learning about roller coasters on the world as a third grader. Maybe my family will take a trip and take me there. Or when I become an adult, I'll go there myself. And, and so I have this kind of connection and I have a vested interest and, and an engagement to actually do this. Like, oh, well, it's interesting how much talk is this roller coaster than this one? So I'm I'm using math to kind of make sense of my world versus like doing math because you know the book told me to. Um, so that's just kind of a taste. There's probably so much more I could say, uh, but I'm just I'm so so excited. I should um, mention that there's a website called uh, it's mathbythebook.com. Um, so Heinemann is is publishing this series. Yeah, and and on my Twitter, I've also posted a lot of things. Um, Sue O'Connell has done uh, for the last couple months now. Uh, if anyone's following her, and I highly suggest you do, um, she's doing a Friday favorite where she's been highlighting different books from different grade levels. Um, uh, the one thing I didn't mention is each when folks purchase the book, because um, it's not an if, it's a when, right? Um, <laughs> when they purchase, each uh, grade level will come with one of the books. Um, so, you know, the anticipate, the kind of expectation is that the other books will kind of be in your school library. So, kind of making this a, a more affordable product. Um, so, but one of the books will be, is kind of highlighted at each grade level. So um, I'm just excited because as Sue has been doing those Friday favorites, there's so many books I have not, you know, at other grade levels that I didn't write for um, that I wasn't familiar with. So I'm just excited to kind of learn these books and, you know, get out there and, and work collaboratively with teachers to kind of integrate literacy and math because I think it's such a such an important way to provide access and equity for students. Yeah, I agree. And I will put the uh, link to the website in the show notes. And then I'll also add your Twitter handle. So if people are looking to follow you, they have that easy access. 
Um, well, I guess just extending a little about the whole math literacy connection. Um, one of the things I didn't really talk about is uh, this one district I've been working with uh, for about six years, six or seven years now. And they don't have a math coach. Um, I mean, like maybe one of their schools in their district, five elementary schools does, but as a like a district wide, they have no math dedicated position, um, except for me uh, as a consultant. Um, and you know, that's always hard because I'm not an employee of the district. I'm a consultant. Um, and in the last year where we were kind of forced to be virtual and a lot of the support I, I did for them was virtually, I collaborated with the literacy consultant who was my counterpart. And so the two of us, um, her name's Gail and she's just great. And the two of us have really been trying to think of like, you know, when we're talking about discourse for students, like that's really not drastically different when you're talking about discussing some a book you read or some uh some writing you've done versus like discussing a math problem so we we've really been focused on how do we support teachers in terms of you know helping to to make those explicit connections between the common things we do across content and and i'm always arguing that like math time should be so sacred because we have to read and write in order to do math right we expect students to to, through the math practices, we expect them to explain themselves. And sometimes that's verbally, and sometimes that's through writing. We expect them to read math word problems and con comprehend and decompose and make sense of it. So, you know, reading and writing is really a, an, an integral part of doing math. Um, However, you don't have to do math to read and write. Um, so I think in terms of in my own personal experience, I've just found that math often, like the, the amount of time, instructional time that's dedicated to math um, gets shortchanged. And so instead of thinking of it as like, oh, it's math time now, like, you know, do your read aloud at reading time and do all the stuff you do. But it's one of these books from Math by the Book. And then guess what? You have all this math you can do to follow up from it. And it's connected and it's it's not disjointed. It's not like, oh, now we're going to do this 180 shift and go do some math. No, they're doing math based on the liter literature that they just read. So um, I just think the more uh, those of us who are in the position to help teachers kind of make those connections, it's going to make life and and the profession of teaching, which is for elementary teachers who are generalists, it's just overwhelming to think of all the expertise they have to know with all these content uh, standards. So I think the more connections we can make, the better. I think that I'm really proud of of that piece with this whole project that I was, you know, so blessed to be part of. Um, so I guess that's my kind of final thought for that. For anyone who is listening, who I'm, I'm making the assumption that they're a little bit more geared toward mathematics, but connecting in your school with the literacy counterpart, whether it's your like literacy lead on your teacher team or your literacy coach or maybe even your um, literacy coordinator and in just make them make sure that they're aware of this math by the book series because it can be it can be a joint purchasing effort, a joint just something that you all do together, like you were saying, make more connections instead of having math do one thing and literacy do another thing. This can just be, it's just so many opportunities for increased collaboration. Absolutely. 
yeah, I'm, I'm just beyond the moon excited about the possibilities with this. Thank you, TJ, for being on the podcast and speaking with us. Thank you. I so appreciate you putting this all together. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to keep the Kids Math Talk conversation going. You can always tweet me with questions or comments using the handle at Kids Math Talk. You can also head to my website, kidsmathtalk.com slash podcast for previous episodes. Leave us a review on Apple or wherever you find your podcast. And join us next time for another episode of Kids Math Talk.